Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening... Welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho. We are live on WNUR, FM Evanston, Chicago, streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Hey, be one of our listeners who gets to have their say on air. Call us, 847-866-9687. All right, tonight I go inside the huddle with designer Julia Nulamera. She designed the production of Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress that opened last night at Boston Lyric Opera. We talk about that show, plus why her New York City-based design studio has a Las Vegas branch and what she thinks needs to change in the way opera productions are designed in America. But first, it's Chalk Talk. Oliver and I try to answer a question posed in last week's edition of Crane's Business Magazine, of all places, can Lyric Opera of Chicago survive the 21st century? Check out the article on our website, operaboxscore.com. Then in 20 minutes, Oliver plays Monday Evening Quarterback on two shows he's seen recently, and it's the two-minute drill, all the opera headlines from the past week that you need to know, and our hot takes on them. Man, this show is packed. Yeah, this is what you get when you take a week off. Not, not That wasn't by choice, by the way. Apologies for the no-show last week. Had some... You were wiretapped? Uh, that's exactly <laughs> right, Oliver. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth, but maybe you were the one wiretapping mm-hmm. me. Now you're getting me all agitated. Uh, hey, really quickly, sports. For the first time ever, our Northwestern University Wildcats are in the NCAA March Madness Basketball Tournament. Go Cats, raw. Smile Art. when you say that, Oliver. No, I'm I'm really excited. I don't watch basketball. Uh, there's not enough skin in that sport for me. What do you? They're not wearing sleeves. What are you talking about? I guess if you're into, but they, they're moving so fast, you can't really enjoy their physiques. You, you want like sumo wrestling? What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> you want butt crack? <laughs> I want like careful speedos what you wish for, or singlets. Oh my lord! Or tennis outfits are pretty cute, you know. Um. Michigan Wolverines, my Michigan Wolverines, the Big Ten champs. Hopefully they're going to have a deep run into the NCAA basketball. I might even fill out a bracket. I might even gamble on college sports like the rest of America for once. Uh, Hey, let's talk some opera. Oh, okay. Does that sound good? Let's do it. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. This was a funny place to find an article, I thought. This is Oliver's idea, actually. I love the idea. I don't read Crane's Business Magazine. You don't? No. Too busy watching TV? 
Did, did you all know? those reality shows that you watch? I watched like the, Real Housewives of no, London no, and stuff no, like that. No, 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 we are getting warmer there. <laughs> the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> oh, you watched that show? I'm in the middle of season two. Oh, I hear it's really good. I, f- I feel like I would really like that show by a time. You so. would love it, yeah. Oliver. It's just the right mix of foodieism mm-hmm. and biting satire that you're so good at. Yeah, and and sometimes there's like cute contestants, right? Uh, Do they show skin? No, oh. no. Unless you're talking about like the skin on a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> this article basically tries to take a more business look at lyric opera of Chicago. And although our conversation for the next few minutes is going to focus on lyric, frankly, I think the principles that this article talks about could really apply to any major house in the U.S. Again, it's on our website, operaboxscore.com. Uh, fact of the matter is lyric is cutting costs. Fact, Lyric is struggling financially, and fact, they have some plans in place to try and... If I said right the ship, I think that would be a little extreme, probably. But I don't think there's a question that they, they need to change the direction they're going. Yeah, I mean, when you say cutting costs, you have to... I wish we clarify. They're not cutting costs. Actually, their budget is bigger than it's ever been uh, based on this past season adding... The Le Toyen doing the, I mean, having a new hydraulic lift built on the stage, having that big uh, turntable built, and starting a ring cycle, in addition to their ninth production coming up soon, their musical production, which is a relatively new thing. This mm-hmm. was their most expensive year probably ever. But they're cutting costs by firing three people or something like that. Later on in this article, they talked about how, yeah. you know, they did some auditing and realized that they could cut three positions, you know, by whatever, giving it to robots or something like well, that. that you know? That's a marvelous idea, <laughs> yeah. unless you're one of those three poor schmoes who got <laughs> right. fired. The, the first, the article sort of talks about a couple of different ways that it suggests that Lyric start to, to write this ship. And the first one is loosening up its image. Do you feel like Lyric has an uptight image, Oliver? Well, I don't feel that way because I'm there all the time, but I absolutely understand how it can be perceived that way. I think a lot of people just think of Lyric as the place to wear a tuxedo and to wear a fur and to, you know, eat caviar and drink champagne and and laugh at the 99%, you know? Right. And there's definitely some of that happening mm-hmm. <laughs> at mm-hmm. Lyric. But uh, I have to say that they uh, they have been trying. And I know, especially with that simple little thing, but they have this sign, the marquee out there. And they've been putting some pretty good one-liners up there, you know, uh, just to poke fun at themselves, you know, talking about, like, whatever. It's sort of like there was some opera. I forget what it was. It's sort of like it's like Game of Thrones or, like, see Eugene Onegin, the original... Uh, he's not into you, whatever opera, you know, that type of thing. And those are funny, right? Because it's a question of contrast and, and conflict, I guess, right? You don't expect to see those one-liners on the marquee right. at Lyric. Right. And then there's also... It's very self-deprecating. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just trying not to take itself seriously, you know? Right. And then there's, like, Lyric Unlimited, and we've talked about that ad nauseum, like, all of their initiatives, like, the concert they had a couple weeks ago where they had, you know famous jazz icon and blues icon and musical theater icon also chance the rapper showed up you know like come into the opera house and see all these people who are related to chicago who have nothing to do with opera and matthew polanzani is going to sing you know <laughs> and renee fleming is going to sing you know just to try to uh mix it up and get like and also this musical theater piece they put at the end of, of the season is a way to get new audiences and their reportage 
says that, you know, 60% of the people who came to see these musical theater pieces, it was their first time, you know? And um, them doing Jesus Christ Superstar next year, there's going to be even more new people in there because that, that is a definitely a much younger, you know, slice of the pie, you know? The, the people that grew up with that show or the people that want to see that show. Exactly, yeah. I'm Count me in, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I cannot, cannot wait. Oh, they are targeting towards the gays, show. so, you know. Okay. Uh, moving on. That, but this is interesting about loosening up because although they have more followers on Facebook, Lyric's got more followers on Twitter, and actually some of their tweets are, they're not directly connected to the shows. Mm-hmm. They're they are pretty funny, actually. I don't know if loosening up your image is just a marketing thing. As you just said about programming, it seems to me that it's more about doing operas in ways that can be unique and compelling and can compete for brain space in a younger audience. To me, I really think the loosening up of the image should start with the programming. I, I think I'm going to have to agree with you on that. Um, you know, we talked about their season announcement a couple weeks ago with uh, Amy and uh, Hauke. 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 Um, and yeah, so they are not bringing the biggest names next year. There are some really great, amazing singers, but it's not like top, top, top shelf you know, um, oh God, I'm in so much trouble for saying that. And their productions are old. I mean, and their operas are old and they're not trying to do something necessarily that creative, except for this Joffrey collaboration, you know, as well as fellow travelers, the Greg Spears, which is not going to be in, at the Civic Opera House. It's going to be off site, mm-hmm. you know, fair point. Uh, but they're not, you know, engaging your Calixto Biexto, Calixto Bietos or your whoever, you know, and they're not doing 20th century operas so or 21st century operas. So they're banking on the star power of the singers they have engaged and the pieces themselves, not the productions, just the pieces. Like, you're going to love E. Puritani because you loved Luci de Lammermoor, you know? That's a gamble, I think, because I'm sure not everybody loved Luci de Lammermoor, yeah. you know? It's a question of the way those stories are going to be told as well. I mean, I feel like... You get into a vicious circle of self-fulfilling prophecy when you do standard rep in standard ways just because you think people are going to like it and they don't want their feathers ruffled. I've said this before. You're doing your audience, I think, a disservice by not challenging them more. I can tell you there's a lot of folks in their 20s, 30s, and 40s that go see performance art, that see stuff at the Museum of Contemporary Art, that see stuff at the University of Chicago. These are intelligent people who are willing to wrestle and grapple with some wilder I, I themes and wilder music. But th- those places that you just mentioned don't have 2,000 seats and don't do those 2,000-seat shows eight times, you know? Yeah. They're they're not that big of a segment of the art going public. They they could be, but lyric doesn't have the brand. You know they have not developed their brand to be any of those things. So if they're going to go in that direction, they're going to have to go along the lines of like doing like bel canto, which they did whatever two years ago. Like that was new enough, you know. But there's nothing like that in this season, you know. Well, let's talk about the house for a second, right? Lyric opera seats probably thirty five, thirty six hundred. I would I guess, guess. Yeah, I, I forget, but yeah, it's gigantic, one of the you know? things this article suggests is using that house for other purposes other than opera, for concerts, for non-musical events like the James Beard Awards. Yeah, uh, I've been chef. there. Yeah, and it's expensive to go to that thing. Yeah, you've been to it at Lyric. Yeah. All oh, right. How yeah. was it? It's amazing. Except okay. it, it's really just for the restaurant Kanishanti. Like, if you're nominated for an award 
uh, you you know you bring your whole crew yeah. from wherever you come from the country to go to come see this thing, and it gets filled up. And then there are enough people who are like foodies who want to see like Elton Brown like hand out the award or want right. to see Tom Clicky or something right. like that. So so there's a way for more revenue, right? But it's just a rental. It's not like they're that does. I mean. The ticket sales doesn't, I think, really affect Lyric's bottom line. It's like they're getting their flat fee from exactly. Awards, so. so Lyric makes money off of it, but it doesn't help increase the actual business yeah, of their what production Lyric does, yeah, budget, which is yeah. tell yeah. stories through. Yeah, it's music. just like it's just to add money to the to paying the electricity bill and stuff right, like that. Exactly. There, you know? Well, Lyric was I. I sort of think of Lyric Opera of Chicago as being one of the first houses to truly master. Subscriptions. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, I think Lyric Opera invented subscriptions. So. I think they did. I forget the name of the guy who. Did I know it. exactly. Danny Glass- Newman. Danny, okay, Danny yeah. Newman. Yeah, that's who it was. You were going to say someone else. I thought something Glasser, but that's somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my question is this: Like, how badly does Lyric need its subscribers? Desperately. And here's the thing: Why? Like, there was a time when you know we were all flush with money. <laughs> as Americans, <laughs> when America was great, and where uh, you know people bought subscriptions like the moment they got the mailer, you know, like like those seasons were sold out until they, what did they say in the article? Like till two thousand one, two thousand two, mm-hmm. like you didn't have to try. Like it was, they always like used to it used to be in the brochure. I remember seeing them one hundred and one percent capacity, one hundred and three percent capacity because they counted on selling out the subscriptions. And then people turning back some tickets because they couldn't use them and reselling those tickets. So they never had to worry about that revenue. And now people don't. I mean, I think after 9-11, you know, the economy went to poop. And then we had the uh, economic disaster in 2008. And the people who really had that type of money, the 1%, they started to get scared and they stopped spending money, you know. And on top of that, we're a bunch of Philistines here in the U.S. We don't have enough arts education, so they have not done enough to develop the audiences who were in their 30s in 2000, you know, or who were in their 20s in 2000. They're just now starting to do this, these more creative outreach initiatives, hoping that it's going to pay off in 10 years, you know. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, talking about the ways in which Lyric Opera of Chicago might survive the 21st century. My question was, does Lyric need subscribers? Take a look at Hamilton. The show has just sat down in Chicago for the next 30 years. (laughs) Hamilton doesn't have subscribers. Right. Right? So no Broadway show has subscribers. Why can't Lyric capture that same model? What am I missing? Hamilton is a hit show. Hello. <laughs> and it's and it's new and everybody's talking about it. there's so much hype about it and people, you know, keep hearing about it and it has like free marketing because they now have like these people doing covers of the songs and Lynn Manuel Miranda is always making appearances on, you know, talk shows and on Saturday Night Live and, you know, on the Tonys. Like it, it's mm-hmm. so much about that show. It's like it's the show that you have to know if you're of a certain age in 2017. And so know? Lyric or insert your opera house here. This is not just about Lyric. This is a national conversation. They're not able to capture that same excitement or vibe about a production of of Rigoletto, they no. can't. They can't get. Of course not. Singer. No, they'll never. They'll never compete with something like that. No, I don't see the, them as being equal things. You think those are kind of apples and oranges? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Greg Mosher, who was the artistic director at the Goodman Theater mm-hmm. before Bob Falls, his whole thing was that he hated the subscribers. This is the Goodman Theater. This mm-hmm. is one of America's biggest regional theaters, and he was like. I never program for subscribers. I don't care about the subscribers. I want the shows to be so exciting and fantastic, 
is that everyone is killing to get a single ticket. He wanted that the same principle of like basically creating every show with the excitement of like a, a Hamilton in today's terms. Okay, well, I don't think Hamilton is a fair like co- comparison, but I agree with you. I think that each show should be able to sell single tickets on its own and you can't sneak in some sleeper because you have somebody who subscribes to all eight, you know? And I think that we are now in a time where the, the audience who subscribes are dying and the audience who needs to move into that level of commitment to some institution, their uh, attention is fractured by so many other things, you know? And we didn't do a good enough job in developing those audiences. Would it ever help Lyric to like close off the uppermost balcony and just not sell those seats? Like, I, I'm not a numbers guy, clearly. <laughs> Because you're scratching your head, but it's like with that, with that, that would not reduce any costs, I guess. No, and that, those are the cheap seats. Those are the people like that can't afford to sit on the main floor. They need to go somewhere. You know, it just feels like the house is too big. Like it was built in a different era. This is, you know, to play devil's advocate, a criticism against my theory about Hamilton. Right, is that the Hamilton house is way smaller mm-hmm. than Lyric? How much or, or a Broadway house would seat? The biggest Broadway houses seat probably what? a third of Lyric, 1,200 seats or something like that. Yeah, probably. So that's why you're able to, to sell that out. And, and hey, in terms of hype and buzz, the only thing that the general public want is to go see a show that they can't see. Yeah. We all just want what we can't well, have. It's, it's just a matter of finding the people and bringing them to the right show and making it, uh, make, creating a price point that they're comfortable with. That, that is a commitment, but that they're comfortable with. I mean, Grand Park Music Festival... It was our free outdoor festival, which does top-notch, you know, programming. You will get eleven thousand people to sit through Mazorksky's pictures of that exhibition. You know, okay. people will line up for when the lyric does the free concert, and it'll be like capacity. They'll have to close the park because so many people are there. So we know that there are people are interested in being exposed. To it. They may not know what the heck is going to be on that show because it's like a free for all, you know. But they want. To be a part, of, they want to understand. They they have curiosity for it, you know. Um, we're just getting back to the subscriptions. What Lyric is trying to do, I think, is is very good. It's trying to create more of a connection between the art and and the patrons. And they had this idea of putting note cards, like thank yous, uh, on the seats, like you know, personalized notes you know, signed by Susan Graham and stuff like that. I'm sure she's not signing like a thousand notes, you know, but, you know, she came up with something and they made a bunch of them and it makes them feel like, oh, you appreciate us, you know, and they also now are closing off Wacker Drive on days of performances so that people can valet park, which I think is very 1%, but still that does make it easier for people to get to the opera because it is actually really tricky. There's like no parking around Lyric Opera House unless you want to fork over like 24 bucks, you know, or more, you know. They still need, I think, a dive bar or some sort of like, they need to make this. They need to make this. If they're going to close off Wacker, they need to figure out what those buildings. There's like some really crabby convenience store in the Civic Opera House that has been there forever, and they sell like <laughs> newspapers and like bottled iced tea and, condoms. and yeah, and like Junior Mints. You know, like buy that space and put up some cool bar for people to hang out. Because there's like a restaurant attached to Lyric, but it's so 
like unapproachable. Like you don't even know how to, you don't even know how to get in there. There's no if, like if you're just walking on the street, you have no idea how to get exactly. into that restaurant. You exactly. have to know the secret entrance like through the side. Like at least the CSO Symphony Center, the restaurant is very open and welcome and inviting and has like great cocktails and and like mussels and fries and like stuff that people can nosh on after the show and like talk about the art. That's you know? so perfect. Get rid of that convenience store and yeah. put in a very like low lit, comfortable space with five dollar PBRs and stacks of well, onion, not PBR, onion rings. but no, no, but not PBRs. But I mean something that's the same level of the art, but not you have to sit down and and eat a five course meal. You know, okay, fine, Goose Island, something like that. You know. But uh, no, they they definitely need something like that that can make a place like more of a community, you know. And they don't have a gift shop. What type of opera house are we that doesn't have a gift shop? You know, there's like That's a little gi- the gift Mets gift shop is awesome. Know? Yeah, I love that gift shop. Let us know what you're thinking about it at Opera Box Score on Twitter. We're going to step aside for one second after the break. Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback, reviewing the Gilbert and Sullivan Opera Company's production of Iolanthe, as well as the Met HD broadcast of Verdi's La Traviata, and then. It's the two-minute drill. You get all your opera headlines that you need. Don't miss them. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Programs include adult education, women's empowerment projects, legal assistance, and youth learning and leadership development. It also conducts special projects such as community organizing and HIV-AIDS outreach and education. For more information, visit www.centroromero.org or call 773-508-5300. This message brought to you by WNUR. Cyberbullying is real. It happens online, in emails, chat rooms, and over IM. And although it may seem like something that is inevitable or happens all the time, there is something you can do about it. To stop an internet bully, simply delete their messages and never forward them on. Delete cyberbullying. Don't write it. Don't forward it. For more information on how to stop cyberbullying, visit www.ncpc.org. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, National Crime Prevention Council, the Ad Council, and WNUR. Nearly one-third of American women report being physically abused by a husband or boyfriend at some point in their lives. Women who leave their abusers are at a 75% greater risk of being killed by their batterers than those who stay. But help is available. Friends of Battered Women and Their Children is committed to protecting battered women's lives and rights. They offer a 24-hour crisis line, counseling, court advocacy, and community outreach and education. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, call the Friends Crisis Line at 1-800-603-HELP. This message brought to you by the Friends of Battered Women and Their Children and WNUR. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. George Cedarquist on 
Opera Box score with the likes of Oliver Camacho. Oh, I'm likable. Man, you saw you saw a couple shows, what, this week? You know, since I last saw you, I've probably seen like eight shows. Okay. I'm not even yeah. kidding you. Good and for you. You know what I saw yesterday that I didn't think I was going to like, but I actually loved it? Hmm. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, oh, yeah. the musical. Yeah. The right. musical. It was awesome. Did you have a good time? I had an amazing time. And I'm not good. so much into the silicone and high heels and, you know. Sure. But I, it was fantastic. That was at Pride Arts Center uh, in Chicago's Uptown neighborhood. And yesterday was the last performance, so I'm not even able to plug them. But uh, it was fantastic. So I was very happy about that. Was there silicone and heels in Iolanthe? So on Saturday, I saw the, uh, I guess it would be the third performance or the second performance of the Gilbert and Sullivan Opera Company's Iolanthe. And so those of you who listen to opera now and migrated over here, you know that um, I know nothing about Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, good. Uh, I can show off. Yeah. And uh, Michael Rice uh, was our resident Gilbert and Sullivan expert. And um, I just let him take the helm whenever we had to talk about GNS. But um, I felt like I owed it to this company, the Gilbert and Sullivan Opera Company of Chicago, to check out one of the shows for the first time. And they've been around for 57 years <laughs> or longer. Wow. Yeah. yeah, they're an institution. And they have performed every single Gilbert and Sullivan opera, sometimes more than once, seven times, just something like that. And they clearly have a nice kind of inventory of costumes and set pieces and, you know, choreography that they probably bring out every time they need some kind of whatever a can-can or whatever those dances are. And uh, I, I knew it was going to be charming. I knew it was going to be earnest, but I didn't realize how like delightful great it was going to be and i credit goes to the stage directors actually um it's kind of complicated i was trying to get to the bottom of this but the stage director's name is shane valenci but i think he had to leave in the middle of the uh rehearsal process okay i don't this is what i heard and then aaron hunt um who is the director of the transgressive opera company uh he took over and he shared the directing responsibilities and whoever did the choreography for this show uh they deserve a big like pat on the back because it was so funny to see people who are clearly not dancers doing this movement on stage a lot of it felt like you know country line dances like english folk you know like it wasn't like super complicated but to get that many people to do that stuff was great. And then there's this tenor named Matthew uh, Peckham uh, who played the role of Streffen. And, you know, he's like fairy on the bottom and mortal on top. <laughs> he could be a dancer. Like his movement was so lovely. He had great line. He was really delicate and bouncy. And like he really felt like he was half fairy. So good job to how him. How about the words? Because a lot of GNS is about how much of the words you can get. I'm so glad you brought that up uh, because this is maybe one of my problems with the show is that there's a lot of talking in the show, and there's also a lot of patter. And uh, patter requires technique. And I relate it to the early Baroque operas, like the, especially like the French Baroque or Monteverdi, where there's more dialogue or more like recitation than there is actual singing. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to go back and forth between those techniques and support your, you know, patter. And I don't... I can't say that everybody was super successful at it because uh, from where I was sitting, I often lost words from certain people. Um, but Mathen Black, and full disclosure, Mathen is one of our panelists and sometimes co-host here. Uh, 
if you listen to his show, Doing the Work with Matt and Black, he's always talking about how much he loves this patter music. True. And he did an amazing job as uh, the chancellor. Is that the role? Yes, yeah. he, he nailed it. I'm sure he, he was did. hilarious. Yeah. And I don't know if he's had clown training. I doubt that he has, but he was a clown in this hmm. show. And he was doing like Pratt Falls and like all this physical stuff that like looked really dangerous. And Mandel Hall at University of Chicago, they have like a true orchestra pit there where you can actually like fall into the pit, you know? And I was so worried that he was going to just take it too far and like fall right into the orchestra because he was really going for it. And it was on the edge. It was really exciting to see a little bit scary, (laughs) but it was exciting to see. And kudos also to tenor Dennis Callop and bass baritone Aaron Wardell. Uh, They were the peers and the bromantic peers, you know, they were hilarious. They were so in sync with each other. They played off each other so well. And I didn't realize how gay Gilbert and Sullivan is. It's pretty clear. Uh, it kind of depends on the spectacles that you're looking at it through. Yeah. Could there be a more different show than La Traviata to uh, Ilanthe? To Ilanthe. Okay, so we're moving on. Um, so I also saw on the same day the Met. Whoa. H- yeah, the Met Double HD. header. Okay. Yeah, that was a triple header, actually. I saw a recital between those two. Oh, my Lord. Uh, the triple header of, um, I mean, the Met HD broadcast of La Traviata featuring Michael Fabiano, tenor of the moment, singing Alfredo, uh, Thomas Hampson in the role of uh, Giorgio Germont, and Sonia Yoncheva, who was the Violetta. Um, so, Michael Fabiano is amazing. He sounds like young Jose Carreras. He does angry really well. Uh, he's youthful looking. Um, his tone is beautiful he's got a great portamento technique and like that for some people it's like what are you talking about this is a real thing like these days american singers especially don't sing with a lot of portamento we're just not taught how to do it and uh there's something about you know this use this 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 grace using this grace that really makes you sound italianate especially in in a composer like verdi and michael fabiano knows how to do it and it was very effective he sort of showed up his co-stars, I have to say, in that aspect. Uh, Thomas Hampson has sung Georgia Germont for a while. Um, he's sounding more and more like a tenor every day. I don't know. It's his voice is getting higher. Um, he looked amazing in his role I mean, as the father, as handsome, as old, elderly, and dignified. He was great. But the voice is getting thin and high. And I'm so sorry if you're listening to this, Mr. Hampson. I'm a huge fan of yours. Then there's Sonia Yansheva. What is there to say about her? She, to me, has a lot of the ingredients for a great singer, a great Violetta, a great bel canto heroine. I just understand why we're being presented this artist at this point in her career. I think that Peter Gelb is trying to make her into this megastar. Okay. And I don't it's think she's, she's quite, no, no, I don't think she's quite ready for it. She's oh, too, too, early. It's too early. Yeah. I mean, I only heard about her like three years ago or four years ago, and now she's in everything. And like they're doing Norma next year at the moment. I think she's one of the Normas. It's like, that's like a role you sing like when you are like a real diva, not when people are just learning who you are, you know? Hmm. So I'm sure she's been around long enough that she, you know, deserves to have this vehicle. But I mean, there's some great singing. She's got a great voice. And um, she's she has an interpretation. I'll, I'll say that she's artistic, but I just feel like it's a little bit too much right now. 
and she is uh, really, I don't want to say struggling because it wasn't a struggle, but she's really fighting. You know, she's really like the music still has a hold on her. She doesn't have a hold of the music, you know. Well, let's wrap up the segment and take a little listen. Okay, so this is, from two, this is from 2015. Uh, this is um, the um, Adio del Passato, the, you know, aria from the deathbed. Uh, we're going to hear one verse of it. And you can hear that, like, the voice is really impressive. It's got a lot of edge to it. Uh, she's really smart with her phrasing. Um, but I just think, I feel like she sings wide open all the time, and she's not protecting her voice. And I, if she keeps singing this way, I don't see her having that long of a career. Opera Box Score in WNUR, 89.3 FM. Designer Julia Nulamera coming up in 10 minutes. Right now it's time for the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. We're in the last week in two minutes or less. No one's got it worse than Fresno Grand Opera right now. Ronald Eichmann, former head of the company from 1998 to 2014, is suing the company and his successor, Matthew Buckman. Now the company has canceled the rest of the season and filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy protection. Multi-award-winning music producer and composer Marius de Vries will be working with English National Opera as creative consultant with immediate effect. De Vries will advise on future projects for staging at the London Coliseum, which will contribute to a series of daring projects combining and colliding opera with popular music and electronic music. The world premiere production of Another Brick in the Wall, the opera got a standing ovation at the Opera de Montreal before the orchestra even tuned up last week. It happened when it was announced that the work's librettist, former Pink Floyd singer and songwriter Roger Waters, was in attendance. 
Next, crunching the numbers, the Deutsche Bühnenverein has just announced a pay rise for all employees at state theaters and opera houses, including chorus and orchestra musicians. The increase backdated to January 1st of this year will be 2%, a minimum of 75 euro a month. Last season, the 290 performances on the main stage of the Wiener Staatsoper achieved an average attendance of 98.59% of seating capacity. Over to the disabled list, it's been three years since Jonas Kaufmann, tenor, has appeared at the Metropolitan Opera. Fans were excited to see him return next season for Tosca, but his management told Met General Manager Peter Gelb, that the tenor was, quote, rethinking his schedule because of his personal life and professional obligations and was no longer available to rehearse and perform. Final curtain for Alberto Zedda, long-standing conductor of the Rossini Festival at Pizarro and also an international authority on Handel, Bellini, and Donizetti. He died at 89. And it's exit stage right for Kurt Moll, one of the finest German basses of the late 20th century. He's died at 78. He sang Baron Ochs in seven commercial recordings of Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier. That's the two-minute drill. Beautiful notes there from Kurt Moll. I have to say, so, well, I'm going to start with that, that Kurt Moll was one of the first basses I actually ever heard sing um, when I was, whatever, 15 years old, gay high school kid, and I started to listen to opera for the first time. I would just go to the library and take out records, yes, records, and bring them home <laughs> and sit down with the earphones and just like, you know, look at the score and like follow along. And I was crazy about Mozart. And there's a... Uh, Carl Böhm recording of Abduction Thralia with Kurt Moll as Osmin, which is a basso profundo role. And I just thought that everybody could sing like that. I had no idea that he was that special because like, he was like, one of the first voices. And so every time I heard a bass sing, I was like, how come they're not any good? Like, what is it? But if you're measuring them against like that Schwarzbach sound, you know, of Kurt Moll, you're not going to compete. I mean, it was always in tune. The tone was always beautiful. And he could get those low notes so easily, like low D, just like pop right out, you know. Wow. And he was hilarious, too. Like, there's a lot of evidence of his of his Baron Ox, you know. Just a great, great singer. And it's, I mean, he lived a full life, you know. It's not sad that he's gone, but, like, truly one of my favorite voices. Uh, and it reminds me of, you know, my first exposure to opera. Frankly, it feels like Jonas Kaufman is gone. <laughs> so... Uh, back in the day, we used to do this bit on Opera Now about uh, whenever Bryn Terville wanted to back out of a production, he would say like he had some family obligation. <laughs> and I'm starting to wonder if Jonas Kaufman's having vocal problems and now he's just trying to reframe it as, oh, I want to spend more time with my family. You know? I don't know. I blame my kids for everything. I, I think that's pretty <laughs> common. But 
Uh, the other part of that story, which we didn't get to, is that um, Vittorio Gregolo will take over the performances of uh, Cavaradossi in the Tosca that he was supposed to sing. And here is another singer who I, I like very much, but boy, is Peter Gelb really forcing this guy on us, you know? And he looks great, and he's a great actor, and his singing is getting better and better, but give this guy a break. Like, let him, like, learn a role and, like, chill out and do it for a while and not do everything. He's done everything this year, so. You have your doubts. Same thing with Sonia Yoncheva. I mean, I feel like they're trying to turn her into Maria Callas, and they want to burn her up, you know? And, like, it's her choice. Ultimately, she can say no. I think she's got lots of talent. I didn't say that in the last segment. I think she's she's really, really artistic, but I think it's so much so soon. So, have you been following the Fresno Grand Opera? Um, just I remember, back and forth a little bit. It's, I remember that it just really happened. Really complex. It happened this story. really fast. Like it just snowballed into this situation, and and it's two separate things, right? It's like the former head of the company is suing his successor, who is also no longer at the company. Matthew Buckman lasted only, I think, a year or so. And then the company also canceled the rest of its season. Now, look, it's Fresno Grand Opera, okay? If that's not a contradiction in terms, by the way. <laughs> it sets a bad precedent, I think, for other companies of its size that have these sorts of problems and don't know how to deal with them. It just feels like there's some bad blood there and people are airing their dirty laundry in public. It'll be interesting to see how that's resolved. I, I think the jury is still out on, on what's going to happen. I have heard about this production of Another Brick in the Wall. Yeah, we talked about it here. Some time ago, though. Yeah. I, I had forgotten about it, actually. And just looking at the production photos alone, it looks so rad. I, I would be willing so is it a rock opera or is it like a is it like a classical idiom opera it's, with rock elements it's, you know it's a, no, like stuart it's, copeland type of deal yeah you know? no it's the latter definitely the latter yeah is. that latter meaning more of like the rock opera oh, okay type the of former thing. the latter is the second of the two didn't yeah. you start by saying i said the first thing is rock opera okay then okay. it is the former okay. yes exactly <laughs> sorry i was putting down my martini as you were talking uh I would just love to see that. I remember listening to The Wall when I was a kid. Hmm. I was listening to opera, and you were listening to The Wall. And man, <laughs> and Amber was in the middle. Just a no. glimmer in her mother's eye at that point. Um, I wonder if Lyric can do that in their postseason, you know? I, first of all, Bring I Bring in some metalheads. First of all, I think Lyric should call part of their season the postseason, because mm-hmm. it I just love that because it sounds like sports. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that's a brilliant way to try and encapsulate. We just talked about it earlier on in the show, how to make it less stuffy and more hip. Have a whole micro season that's a musical and a rock opera and a third thing. And a GNS piece. or Mm, That's not what I was going to (laughs) say. That's not hip enough. (laughs) That's definitely. (laughs) I have to. One day you have to explain to me like what these shows are about, because I definitely felt that there was some like political satire that was going over my head with for the I- wall? I- no for Ireland the <laughs> Oh okay. Oh definitely. Well you've uh, you've seen Topsy Turvy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Brilliant movie. I loved it. Yeah. I grew up on GNS mm. actually. Now oh, that explains back it. home in yeah. Ann Arbor. Yeah. Uh, that that's some of my first opera memories is going okay. to the local Gilbert and Sullivan Society, which hmm. was brilliant by the way. In in uh, in Ann Arbor. Okay. At just, University I was of Michigan. Say, like in England when I was in boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, this is before boarding school, Oliver. <laughs> Uh, and do you know, uh, over Easter, I'm going to go back to Michigan and with my family 
And Ben and I are going to go see his first Gilbert and Sullivan opera nice. together. Yeah. The nice. Pirates of Penzance. That's a good one. Great way to start. So Alberto Zeta, rest in peace. Um, really important to the um, uh, academia, academic uh, study, the, what am I, what's musicology of Rossini. Huge, huge in the history of Rossini and in creating the critical editions. But I know we have to get to Inside the Huddle because we're almost out of time. She's one of the most creative designers I know. <laughs> Julia Noulin-Merin is up next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Stick around. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Do you know have epilepsy and need help finding or keeping work? The Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Chicago can help. The foundation offers free vocational counseling, job-seeking skills, training, assistance in finding job leads, and follow-up support. For more information, call 312-939-8622 or go to www.efncil.org on the web. Will you always be living paycheck to paycheck? Not if the National Endowment for Financial Education can help it. Log on to www.smartaboutmoney.org today to take the first step towards improving your financial well-being and discover new ways to make your money work for you. Are you having problems with debt, managing your finances, or saving for retirement? Help us here, and it's closer than you think. Visit smartaboutmoney.org to find answers to your financial concerns. Brought to you as a public service by the National Endowment for Financial Education and WNUR. Ever hear someone say, there are plenty of fish in the sea? There aren't. It's no joke. Many fish are declining in number, and you can make a difference. The folks at Environmental Defense have advice on how to choose fish that are plentiful or caught in an environmentally friendly way, which can help keep our oceans healthy and full of fish. Just visit getgreen.com, and you'll also find other easy tips on how you can help protect our world. That's getgreen.com. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here. Julia Nulemera runs her own design studio. It's based in New York City, outposts in Boston, Montreal, and Las Vegas. She and I first met at the Opera America Conference in 2013 when I was presenting a production of my own, Silent Night, by Kevin Putz and Mark Campbell. She's been working on the production of Rake's Progress by Stravinsky, which opened last night in Boston. I got a chance to sit down with her a couple weeks before the show opened, we talked about a lot of things. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Julia Nulemera, thanks so much for being on the show with us. Let me introduce you to our listeners. You are the head of your own design firm that's based in New York City. You've got offices in Boston, Montreal, Las Vegas. So what is in each of those cities for you and the work that your team does? Um. Things have drawn me to different cities, obviously. Um, I found when I graduated from grad school in Boston that actually 
people were seeking more. They, they love in the upper world to say they hired New York designers. So I moved to New York and met lots of cool young directors and kind of started there. And um, originally, I did my undergrad in Montreal, so that drew me as well there because I have a lot of contacts. And um, in Vegas is because I also do a lot of immersive, site-specific shows, not just opera. So I kind of like jump around between all those cities. And, um, you know, our career now lends itself that we work so much more remotely as well. So I, th- there are times I don't get to see the space until uh, we load in. Um, for instance, I did a show in China, and we were building the space as we were doing it. So I, I need to be able to move around and be very flexible in that respect. And so I have assistance a little bit everywhere. What's the hardest part of running your own design studio? So I started the, my own studio to have a little bit more independence. I worked with Derek McLean for two years in New York, and he's mostly a Broadway designer, although he also does the Oscars and all that. And I learned a lot from him, the business of show business. And I found that if you create your own entity, you maintain more creative control. So that was very important for me. Um, And I think in this day and age, that's something you better stay on top of if you want to see your vision come through fully. So um, my studio provides anything from, you know, do you also need a technical director on the show or a props master or painters so that um, we can come in as a team and create the environment. And so you did your undergrad at Concordia in Montreal, and there you took a class called Performance for Designers. Tell me about that. So one of the things that we did at Concordia was that um, we had a – well, we actually had to take two performance classes, but one of them was Performance for Designers, which I thought was genius um, because, for instance, they would put us in the tightest corsets, their tallest heels on a rake, furniture, you know, that wouldn't fit, like, under tables and whatnot. And so what it did is, in terms of my design approach, you know, not only do I see the space from the outside, but also from within. So I think that's important as well. So I'm very, you know, actor-minded as well. Um, And that was very enlightening for me because I don't think about all these things. You mentioned Derek McLean, the designer, as one of your mentors. Another man that has mentored you is the designer John Conklin, who is also... A, an artistic associate at Boston Lyric Opera. And so what is it about Conklin? He's famously worked with great directors like John Copley, for example. What is it about him, his style, and his mentorship? So w- what I love about John's approach is not only is he a designer, but he's a very strong dramaturg, which to me is incredibly important when you're telling a story, particularly in the opera. Um, so that has been very inspiring to me. And also just his passion for everything and being relentless, you know, to make the best production possible. Um, I, to me, that, that's something I really hope to continue in my career and aspire to because I, I just, I, I'm in awe of him. <laughs> you know, he, he, he has done everything. And and he still finds fresh ideas and fresh approaches to things. And I think that's very important as a designer not to be, you know, cornered into like, oh, this is your style. Um, To me, 
that was something also when I was looking at grad schools, I didn't want to walk out of there thinking this, you know, oh, we can tell this is a Julia production because your job is to serve the show and, you know, work with all the creatives. So to me, that's definitely something that I aspire to continue in doing. And he's very inspiring in that way. All right. I'm sure the list is going to be long and you're not going to get every name onto it, but who are some of the other designers that are working today that you admire? I think definitely Vita Simkin is, you know, a colleague and somebody I admire. We, you know, we've worked on a couple projects together. She's a costume and also set designer. And she's just relentless too. And there's just the quality of her work and her aesthetics are incredible. So I definitely love her. Um, I would say I generally <laughs> admire lighting designers more um, just because of how they sculpt the space and it's very hard and I deal with them on a daily basis. So I'm always in awe of them. I love Thomas Hossey, Mark Stanley. Um, those are definitely, you know, Chris Ackerland, Paul Hackemuller, these these are gentlemen that really, you know, know how to shape stories and help in providing the context. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here talking with designer Julia Noulin Mera. All right, so one model of opera production in the U.S. currently is that an opera company will design a show, the scenic design, the costume design, and then they'll rent that production out over the coming years to other opera companies, usually mid-sized or smaller opera companies, that want to produce that specific version. So what's your opinion of that model? Obviously, a production is created or either one, or in when it's a co-production for, you know, specific audiences in mind. But I feel that my job is, I'm, I'm not just there to, for instance, just do the design or the production design. This is something I've created with a specific director. Um, so we've, we've discovered things together, and also same thing with once we bring in the singers, there are things that we adapt for them or that, you know, they, they, they bring things up in the rehearsal room. When I write contracts, and this is not standard for my shows, I actually say the director who originated the production has right the first refusal. And to me, that's important because they're just as much part of the creative design as, you know, I also was there and, and helped in text, like, oh, what if we move, you know, these singers here and there or something. So to me, it's, you know, it's a group effort and it's important that it keeps being acknowledged. There's also, you know, this new um, fad that is for companies. They'll be like, oh, come to our, um, you know, storage and warehouse and create something out of our stock and add your, you know, I call it my Julia Bedazzling to it. <laughs> um, and for me, that's, that's also tricky, and I try to be respectful of the designer's work as well. And I'm always asking, you know, how are we acknowledging everybody's work in this production? Um, so that's also very important. All right. So it seems to me that good art is always about the present moment, the here and the now. So how can a production that was designed 3, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago really be about the here and the now? 
how compelling is it to your audience to have seen Carmen three times on the same set, but with different directors? Because I cannot tell you how often that happens. And even the singers get bored by it, because I've heard stories where singers are like, oh, last time I was on this set, you know, I came down the staircase here, and the previous time I was there. So I think it's one, it's acknowledging, you know, that, yes, there's, you know, opera history in America, but also it's making sure that productions still feel fresh, not just to your audience, but also to the people who are creating the work. And that's very tricky. Um Obviously, you know, if, if you look back at the Kirsty, so, so actually this is a great story. Um, because I just did a show at Opera Omaha where, um, it's an original idea by Diane Paulus. She wanted to set it in a nightclub. They did it in 2002 at COT and Opera Omaha kind of, you know, wanted the same feeling, but realizing that first of all, technology has evolved tremendously. We have smartphones now. And so to to have a nightclub feel fresh in 2002 versus in 2017 is a completely different language. So that that was something also that we had to figure out, you know, what is the what are the equivalents and how are we I'm going to call it translating that to now. Um what's also you know um I think what makes a production feel fresh, however, you know, for instance, if you do a production on an old gold set, you know, it's, I think, first and foremost, we're all here to tell a story. So as long as you're telling a story, I think that's also important as well. Um, because we all do period pieces, right? Um, and, and that's, and, you know, how does that relate to our audience continuously changing? For instance, Breaks Progress that I'm doing at Boston Lyric. Um, part of my design was based on actually Trump's apartment in New York City because everything is gold leaf and everything is gold. And well, now he is president, and but we designed this show a year and a half ago, so it's going to resonate very differently with our audience when the curtain goes up for them. So, Julia, you're a French citizen. You could be working in Europe legally. Is that attractive to you to be working overseas? It's attractive for me to work everywhere. I mean, I, I would love to, you know, continue and in, in work internationally. The reason why I picked the United States and why I'm staying in the United States is because I am more excited what's happening in the opera in America itself. There's a lot of new music, which is something I speak and I work and I produce. Um, and also I feel like opera is actually much more vibrant right now in in opera, strangely, because as you mentioned, you know, people are seeing productions that are fifteen to thirty year old and now, you know, they're finding the resources and they're going to their boards asking to create new productions. So that to me is incredible. I get to work with living composers and create new productions. So the best of all worlds. You've been working on Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress at Boston Lyric Opera. Tell me about the concept for the show. So um, for Rake's Progress, our approach is actually we've integrated the character of Stravinsky in the story. So it's him. It starts him in the 50s, basically composing Rake's Progress, so right before the Rite of Spring. And it's and so it is performed um, 
by Yuri, and, and he's a dancer. So basically, he's integrated into the storytelling all the way till when we go to the cemetery scene, where he's kind of the one who's saying stop to Nick. So that to us was very interesting into like a hook into the story. Um, Stravinsky is an incredible character because he was fascinated by Hollywood. He was fascinated by celebrity, which is also very relevant now in this reality TV era. So all the sets kind of feel like miniature Hollywood sets that are, it feels very much like a dreamscape. And so we kind of follow Tom's adventures with Nick through this nightmare. Um, and so it's, it has a little bit of, you know, it has the Hollywood glamour and also feels very surreal. All right. Lastly, any sort of trends that you are interested in or that you're following in American opera today? I think there's, uh, yes, <laughs> lots of feelings, but there's a huge trend also happening in the U.S., which is site-specific and or immersive opera, which I love. And it's definitely my favorite thing to do is to, you know, take a raw space or, you know, a non-traditional performance space and invite an audience in and tell a story. I mean, that and all the challenges that it includes, such as, Where's the audience going to sit? What are the acoustics like? Because that rests a lot, acoustics on the scenic designer. Um, I love those challenges. And kind of, I feel like it opens up the audience to a new experience when you're saying, let's go see Don Giovanni in a warehouse instead of at the theater. Because once upon a time, when opera was happening, it used to be all modern art. You would go see you know, a contemporary composer, and then the architecture surrounding you was, you know, sculptures of your time. So, and you have the latest fashion on stage and everything. So I think now site-specific immersive is getting pretty close to what, you know, the opera used to be. It used to be an event that you would hang out with your friends, and I'm, I'm excited about that, and I love that we do that at Boston Eric, um, and I love doing more, so... That's definitely my so buff statement. More new opera in new spaces. Julia Nulamara, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It was so awesome to hang out with her on the phone just for a few minutes. If you get to see that show at Boston Lyric Opera, Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress, check it out. Let us know what you're thinking on Twitter at opera box score time to wrap this show up good call bad call on opera box score super quick bad call there's no live show next week wnur studios getting renovations so we are off the air the good call is math and black and i are going to do a podcast together might even be a little bit of profanity on that. Kind of depends how much Mathen's been drinking first. That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Amber Carter is our sound technician at WNUR. The programming director is Nick Anderson, and the general manager is Brax Ducey. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook and Twitter, search for Opera Box Score. Like our Facebook page, share and comment on our posts, or tweet us at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Excuse me, iTunes. I almost invented a new 
way to listen there. If you like what you hear on iTunes, leave a review. It'll take you like 30 seconds. It's the cheapest. It's the fastest way for you to help promote our show. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera in your best Irish brogue. Argo Radio is up next with DJ Joe. This is WNUR FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.